True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to a Spotlight Minisode. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our newest Patreon, Antoine Detoy. Thank you so much for your support, Antoine. It really is greatly appreciated. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. We have two new ways to support the show now. You can purchase my first audiobook production on Audible, The Krugersdorp Cult Killings by Diana Marks. And you can also purchase your health and beauty needs by going to King Online and using the discount code TCSA10 at checkout. You get a 10% discount, and you support the show too. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to help keeping the show growing and improving. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Usually in Spotlight Minisodes, I cover cases that are in the media at the moment. But today I wanted to share something a little different with you. I often get asked what made me get into true crime, and my answer is always that crime and mysteries have always been an interest for me, pretty much for as long as I can remember. If I'm honest though, there is one case that I think not only made me very aware of the reality and cruelty of the world at a pretty young age, but it would also become the case that honed my research skills, and I think introduced me to the rabbit holes of the internet. I grew up on the East Rand of Gauteng and attended Boxburg High School from grade 8 all the way through to matric. The case in question occurred when I was in grade 8 in 1994. I'm going to first relate to you how I viewed the case as a child, and then I'll tell you the actual story that I was eventually able to dig up. This happened really early in the school year, and we just had a student from Poland join our grade. Beata was 12 years old. She stood out not only because of her slight accent, although her English was excellent, but also because she looked a little bit different from the rest of us. She was quite a lot taller and I remember her striking blue eyes. If I'm honest, I didn't take much note of the newcomer. I was not the most social of teenagers, and really pretty much kept to myself. I was already a keen observer, though, so the events that followed stuck in my head. Within days of us starting grade 8 together, I heard that Beata's little sister had been kidnapped. In my child's mind, and having relatively recently been drilled with the information about the Van Royen kidnappings, 
I think that's where my brain automatically went. As we all know, none of the Van Royen victims were ever found. And I think that was my limited understanding at that point. I pretty much thought that when kids went missing, they were just never found again. I've tried to recall my reasoning behind that line of thought for a while. I was by no means a sheltered child. I was already well aware that there are cruel and evil people in the world, but that's a story for another day. I don't know why my brain had decided that missing children are never found at that time, but I do clearly remember thinking that it was terrible that her sister had been kidnapped and that they would now look for her forever. I honestly don't know where I thought missing children went. In fact, I probably hadn't even thought that far. But I certainly hadn't linked the idea of missing children and murder in my young brain just yet. Until Eva, that is. If I think back, it feels like a really long time between when eight-year-old Eva went missing and when her murder was confirmed to me. It felt like months, but it was, in fact, I now know, only weeks. I know that Beata was at school for a little while while they were searching for Eva, and then she just didn't come back for a long time. And I think that it was in that period that I read in the Boxbook Advertiser. Yes, I was nerdy like that. In fact, I would eventually go on to job shadow a journalist at that paper in Matric. I read that Eva's body had been found. It took me quite some time to fully comprehend that this eight-year-old sister of my classmate had actually been purposefully killed by the person that had kidnapped her. That concept rocked my world. Suddenly I had to accept that when children disappear, they don't just go off somewhere else. Sometimes they're killed. Knowing all that I do now about crime, it's almost frustrating to think that I found it so difficult to make that connection back then. But I think that every child has their first experience like this at some stage, and it takes a while to really understand the connection between a vibrant eight-year-old, someone's sister, and a body found at a dam. The next memory I have of this case was Beata returning to school briefly after her sister was buried. She brought photographs of her sister's grave to school, and again, I had to try and understand how this had happened and what it meant. Every child is scared of the imaginary monster under the bed or in the cupboard at some point. But for me, I just realised that the real monsters were walking around and they looked just like the guy next door. I can't tell you when Beata left our school but at some stage during that year she was gone. I would later discover that her family had left South Africa. I think that it was only after I matriculated that Eva's story really started to haunt me again. 
the image of her face on that missing poster was still as fresh in my mind as it was the day I saw it for the first time. And I think that it's at this point that I realised that my brain worked a little differently to many other people. While most others would do their best to forget that horrific moment in time, I couldn't. I needed to know more. I needed to fill in the gaps in my memory with facts. And there came a point when I realised that I had no idea if Eva's case was even solved. That had been another thing that hadn't really entered my mind at that young age. Who did this, and was he behind bars? Throughout the years, I would occasionally get a bee in my bonnet and see what I could find out about the case. I was always met with the same result. Nothing. Of course, it was only later on when my research skills became a little more developed that I realised I'd been using the wrong spelling of Eva's name all along. Her name is pronounced Eva, but it's spelled with a W instead of a V. I had also remembered their surname spelling incorrectly. So until my research skills were a little more advanced, I was unable to find anything. The case continued to play on my mind, especially after I heard a few years after I'd matriculated that a classmate of mine had been murdered. Again, that's a story for another day. Eventually, I was able to find one small mention of the case, quite by chance. In a research paper I found online that studied specific sexual offences. They mentioned Eva's name, and they mentioned the offender's name, Christian de Vett. With that in hand, I started searching for his name, and came across an entire chapter in a book that at that point I had not yet read, but that would become a major resource for me. Strangers on the Streets by Mickey Pistorius Now if you know that book, you know that it was about serial killers in South Africa. And yes, it turns out that Ava Nozel was not the only young life that Christian de Vett took. Within the pages of Mickey's book, I got the answers I'd been searching for, and far more than I'd bargained on, to boot. This is Eva's story. Eva, Beata and their parents had immigrated to South Africa in 1991. Poland was under communist rule for almost 45 years and had only recently gained its sovereignty from Russia in 1989. Conditions in the country were not the best and the family likely thought it better for their children's future to move. By 1994, the family was well settled into a house in Chotsnip Road in Boxburg. Eva was attending a local primary school, and Beata was, of course, at Boxburg High. Both their parents, Martha and Richard, worked full-time. On the afternoon of the 26th of January 1994, Eva Nozel rode the bus home from school. As was her habit, she stopped off at her parents' P.O. box to collect the mail before walking a few blocks home. 
We will never know if Eva saw the red car parked in front of her house when she arrived that day, but she followed her parents' instructions, went inside and locked the door behind her. Eva rummaged through the mail and found a slip from the post office for a package that needed to be collected. The package was from family in Poland, and she was excited to see the contents. Eva phoned her mother at work and asked if she'd be able to collect the package on her way home. Martha told her daughter that she wouldn't be able to do it that day, but said that she should phone her father and ask him instead. At 2 p.m., Eva phoned her father. He didn't answer, but called her right back. He told her he would only be able to collect the parcel the next day. Half an hour later, Martha phoned Eva to tell her that she would fetch the parcel that day after all. Eva was extremely excited. Martha would have no way of knowing that not only would Eva never see the contents of that parcel, but as the phone clicked in her ear and disconnected from her daughter, this would also be the last time she would ever hear her voice. Fifteen minutes later, when Eva's older sister, Beata, arrived home, Eva was gone. The front door to the house was standing open, as was a window next to it. The back door was also open. Eva's school blazer lay on the floor next to the door, but there was no sign of her little sister anywhere. A frantic call to her father had him arriving home by 3.30. In this case, the police reaction was immediate. By ten minutes past four, detectives arrived at the Nosal home, and the investigation began. It appeared that Eva had first opened the window to talk to someone. She had been told never to open the door to strangers, and her parents could not understand why she had opened it. Thinking back now, I wonder if it wasn't that parcel that had Eva opening the door. Sure, the offender would not have known about it, but she was in a buzz of excitement about getting it. If someone had come to the door and told her they'd been sent by her mother for whatever reason, would she have assumed that perhaps they'd been sent to help her fetch the parcel? No physical evidence was found anywhere in the house. The offender did not seem to have touched the door or the window. By 6pm, detectives and policemen flooded the Boxburg neighbourhood, interviewing neighbours. Children living in the same road mentioned that they had seen a red car parked outside Eva's house that afternoon. Some of the girls' friends would also say they had seen a red car following their bus that afternoon. They said that when the bus had stopped and Eva had gotten off, the car had continued on past them. There was intense media publicity about Eva's disappearance. It made the news that night and was on the radio as well. In the days that followed, police would launch a major manhunt for the man in the red car and, of course, for Eva. 280 policemen. Eleven dogs and a helicopter were used to conduct extensive searches. Police divers were called in to check the dams in Boxburg, 
including the infamous body-dumping site of Boxburg Lake. Eva was nowhere to be found. A reward of 250,000 rand was offered for Eva's safe return, and her parents put themselves to work distributing flyers so that they could feel like they were doing something when they felt so absolutely helpless. The investigator in charge of the case, Captain Fanikak, began to look at the records of known paedophiles living in the area. One case in particular caught Fanikak's attention. Seven months before Eva had gone missing, another young girl had been abducted in Boxburg. Twelve-year-old Helena de Villiers had been found at Cinderella Dam in Boxburg the day after she was murdered. She'd been raped and stoned to death, and then her body had been left at the dam. No one had been arrested in Helena's case, but Fanikak was now seeing strong contrasts between these two crimes. Helena and Eva looked almost identical. Fanikak knew that he was looking for a paedophilic offender, so he decided to start going through the Child Protection Unit's unofficial list of sex offenders with paedophilia. Fanikak worked his way down the list, bringing in man after man, questioning them about their whereabouts on the days of the two crimes. Eventually, he got down to Christian de Vett. The 25-year-old man had been arrested and found guilty of molesting four young girls. He had been sentenced to three years in jail and was out on bail while he appealed his conviction. When interviewed by Fanikak, de Vett tried to convince him that the previous case had all been a misunderstanding and he couldn't be a paedophile because he was engaged to be married. Fanikak released de Vett from that questioning, but could not shake the feeling that there was something there. When he realised how close de Vett's house was to where Helena de Villiers' body had been found, he was able to gain a search warrant for the de Vett home. As police searched Christian de Vett's home, he realised the gig was up, and he broke down and confessed to murdering Helena de Villiers. He also admitted that he had kidnapped and killed Eva Nozel. De Vett would later tell police where to find Eva's body. She was found at Sierra Swat Dam in Benoni. Her body, hidden among the reeds, was severely decomposed. Christian had raped her before beating her to death with a blunt instrument, likely a rock that lay nearby. Eva's parents received the most devastating news of their lives that evening. The next day, her father identified her body by her hair and some remaining pieces of clothing. Eva's parents had believed up until that point that there was a good chance that she was still alive and perhaps simply being held somewhere else. They had not been told about the Helena de Villiers connection until de Vett's arrest to spare them the horror of what was inevitably coming. Christian de Vett was held at Depkloof Prison while awaiting trial for both murder charges. While there, his fiancée and two other women 
hatched a plan to break him out of jail. They almost succeeded, but De Vitt was detained again. After being taken back to the holding cells, Christian De Vitt hung himself that night. By the time his body was discovered, he was already deceased. Articles printed around the time, as well as Mickey Pistorius's book, draw parallels between these two murders and these six girls kidnapped by Joey Harhoff and Gert van Royen. At the time, it was said that these links were being investigated, but with the death of De Vett, perhaps that investigation was abandoned. When the Harhoff van Royen kidnappings occurred, and for years since then, Rumours have abounded that the couple were part of a group of paedophiles. It's not terribly common for paedophiles to work in groups. This is known to happen when child abuse material is distributed, and I can't say that it's not the case here. I do hope that one day we will know, but I dread to think that those six girls suffered the same fate as Eva and Helena. As a 13-year-old child, I knew nothing about any of this at the time, and reading about it was, to be honest, very strange. This was a collection of fragments of memories that had invaded my thoughts and had me scouring the internet and social media in the hopes of finding answers for almost two decades. And now suddenly in black and white, there it was, Eva Nozel, the eight-year-old girl whose smiling face had been stuck in my head from the age of 13, had been murdered, and she wasn't the only one. As I look back now from the position I find myself in, knowing what I do about serial killers, child killers, missing children and paedophiles, it seems surreal that I was that close to it all because really, all that stood out for me was her sister's face. First, terrified, fielding questions from her classmates that she had no way of answering, and then devastated, clutching photographs of her little sister's grave, because that's all she had left. I remember feeling immense sadness that they had felt the need to leave South Africa, I don't know if it was a matter of feeling like South Africa had let this family down, or if it was sadness at the fact that they'd arrived here with the greatest of hopes for a new life, and had to leave one member of their family behind when they fled the place that had caused them their greatest grief. I wonder now if Eva's case was the reason that I'm so focused on victims having a voice. Her case received excellent police attention, and I guess we could say that there was justice of a sort. But the world moved on. 27 years later, there will be very few people on earth that remember the little blonde girl called Eva Nozel. She was only given eight years to make an impact. But at least where I'm concerned, she made an enormous one. My schoolmate's little sister 
was my first understanding of the deep cruelty that the world has to offer the most innocent. I know that with your help, True Crime South Africa is making an impact. It is not just entertainment. And I know that it is making a real difference in at least a few people's lives. And Eva had a role in that. So 27 years later, when Eva should be 36 years old, possibly married and maybe with an eight-year-old of her own, this little Polish girl, who adopted South Africa as her new home and then never left, is making a difference. Rest gently, Eva, and thank you. Thank you for listening to this Spotlight Minisode, Eva Nozel, The Case That Started It All. If you enjoyed this minisode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a full case episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. Bye.